0: Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet Respiratory Medicine podcast. My name is Nicolai Humphreys. I am joined on the line by Irene Higginson to discuss a new study published in the journal on a palliative care service in patients with chronic lung disease. Irene, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Nicolai. It's great to be here. I'm Irene Higginson, Professor of Palliative Care at King's College London and the Sisley Saunders Institute.
0: Thank you. Let's get straight into things. Could you tell us a little bit about the background and rationale to this study?
1: So a group of us wanted to try and improve the conditions for people who have breathlessness, chronic breathlessness particularly. Breathlessness, and in some medical circles, it's also called dyspnea. Uh, It's a common and distressing symptom, which you find in many advanced chronic diseases, such as lung diseases, but also some uh, neurological diseases and cancer. And it causes considerable disability, anxiety, and social isolation. In fact, we can estimate that across the world, over 75 million people experience breathlessness each year. And I'm interested in it from the point of view of palliative care, because breathlessness increases as the disease gets worse. It's very frightening for patients and families. And it often ends up leading to an emergency hospital admission, because people get severe breathlessness, often out of hours, and they can panic. It's also associated with loss of will to live. And despite the fact that it's the second most common symptom after pain, there's actually been very, very little research done on breathlessness. It's been neglected. So we wanted to try and improve the lot for people with
0: breathlessness. Thank you for that introduction. What would you say were the key findings, and why exactly is it so important for the field of chronic lung disease?
1: So we tested a, a new type of service called the Breathlessness Support Service, which is a new service that's not currently available on the NHS. And it was a multidisciplinary group of us. And I think to crack breathlessness, you need to have a multidisciplinary group of people. And the key feature of this Breathlessness Support Service is that it tries to integrate palliative care. That's care that I, as a palliative specialist, do, which is orientated to the person and has a focus on symptom control, um, but also psychological support. It integrates that earlier than people would normally receive it with existing experts in respiratory mes- medicine, physiotherapy, and occupational therapy. And rather than patients having to run around lots of different points of access of care, which we our earlier research found was very common for people with breathlessness, so they're going to see respiratory doctors, their GP, cardiologists, and then maybe a palliative. We brought them all together through a single point of access and offered a short-term service where we tried to put the clinicians together rather than making the patients move between them. And we developed particular therapies that we offered in the service, including guidance on how to manage breathlessness, including some specific simple non-pharmacological therapies such as review of their medications, such as a review at home by the physiotherapist and occupational therapist. Um, So that was the focus of our our service, and it had three contacts. And what we did in this study, which was a randomized trial, so patients were uh, enrolled in the study, and then they didn't know whether they'd get the breathlessness support service early or whether they'd be offered it Sort of at the end of the trial. They didn't know which group they'd been in and our interviewers didn't know which group they were in. And what we found is that the group that got the early breathlessness support service had better quality of life and, interestingly, better survival at follow-up.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that the, uh, the findings were that positive. Looking over at the paper, I noticed that the primary endpoint was mastery of breathlessness rather than severity of breathlessness. Could you explain that distinction, please? We had
1: a long debate about what was the right outcome measure for this study and we based a lot of our thinking on some of our earlier work interviewing patients and families with breathlessness and also some of the patients and families that were on our subject advi- uh, project advisory group along with other clinicians. Uh, mastery of breathlessness is actually one domain in a very well established and widely used quality of life measure that has a long track record and history and that's been well used in patients with lung disease and and breathlessness. And so it's not something that we made up, it's a domain within the quality of life measure that was shown to be an important component of quality of life. And we chose it rather than levels of breathlessness for several reasons. The first is that a rating of breathlessness is, is very highly variable. And a patient can have several attacks of breathlessness several times a day without a constant level of breathlessness. And so helping somebody feel that they are the master of their breathlessness and that it doesn't impinge so much on their quality of life may be more important than reducing the severity of a single attack. The the other thing I would say is that you have to think that breathlessness is a normal thing in life. If you run for the bus, you get breathless. And you will normally run to the extent or speed, it depends how fit you are, of course, Nicola, but if you run for the bus, you will get breathless. I will, anyway. And I will normally run to the extent that my breathlessness will allow me, and I'll stop. So the same happens with people with chronic breathlessness. They will perform activities, so do things at home, the washing up, the vacuuming, making the bed even moving from one chair to another, to the highest level of breathlessness they can bear and hope that they can do more before they reach that point. So in fact, a level of breathlessness may be um, uh, untrue, because you may say somebody's saying, well, my breathlessness level is the same, but in fact, they're actually doing slightly more because they're doing activity to the level of breathlessness that they can bear. So because of that, and because the Breathlessness Support Service aimed to provide patients with coping strategies and interventions and treatments to help them master their breathlessness, while accepting that we couldn't cure the disease or alter its natural uh, history, we felt that this um, uh, perceived breathlessness mastery as a component of quality of life was more important than actual level of breathlessness and we did qualitative interviews with patients and families to try and understand that and the quotes that we got from them about what they saw as being the effect of the service seemed to support our thinking in that.
0: Why is it important to measure mortality as an endpoint in palliative care trials?
1: Well, survival and mortality are important and recommended safety and secondary endpoints in most trials. and you have to be mindful that any intervention, any trial can do harm. And although in general in palliative care, our goal in palliative care is not particularly to extend life, it's also not to hasten death. I mean, as a palliative,ist my job is not to hasten death. And in palliative care in general, we try to add quality to life and years, not necessarily years to life. But It is important to understand if any intervention does harm, as well as good, and so we felt just as in any other trial, it's important to measure survival. It's also important because if people drop out of a study, the reason why you have data that could be missing in the study. It's important to know why that data is missing. So, as part of recording dropout and missing data, we felt that automatically we had to measure survival as well. And as it happened, although it's only a secondary endpoint, we actually find not a worsening of survival in the group getting the breathlessness support service, but an improvement in survival. So, it's only a secondary outcome. We can't be entirely sure confident what that means but I think it does mean that the breathlessness support service certainly doesn't harm survival and possibly it may benefit but we need more work to establish that.
0: Thanks Irene that leads me nicely into my last question which is what clinical impact will your findings have and what is the next research priority for the field?
1: The study was done only in in one place in one setting so I think an important next area of investigation needs to be testing this service more widely. Can other people do what we've done and reproduce it and find similar benefits? And I think that, that is quite an important thing to establish. The, the other clinical importance is that there were a lot of things that we've used in the service which we're quite happy to make available for others. And in fact, we developed some based on other people's research, so it's only fair. So we had an information pack that we gave patients which explains about breathlessness and gives them guidance. It was very interesting in the qualitative interviews, some of them referred to us as tutors, those tutors. And I'm curious as to whether actually some of what we've done in the intervention could be developed into a DVD or an online format or even a telephone format, although I have to say that patients did like the face-to-face contact in the service so i think there are elements of the intervention that actually we could look at being incorporated into other existing interventions and it is a low-cost intervention think that well we did economic work on the uh, breathlessness support service it didn't appear to cost any more than existing services so that was good in the long term we don't know its effects so it may cost less it may cost more i doubt it would really cost more because it's a short-term service, so after three sessions it's over. And if we could prevent future hospital admissions by the service, it would actually be a saving to the NHS. So um, I, think, I think some long-term follow-up with investigation of the costs would be useful. There are other people now working on breathlessness, and I think that the interventions that we've used, they could incorporate into some of their services. As an immediate clinical implication, I'd like all doctors to become more aware of breathlessness and its assessment, and how to help manage patients with breathlessness, and at least acknowledge that it's there. Because one of the other things we've learned about patients with breathlessness is that they're often an invisible group in society. If you think about it, you need breathing to talk to other people. So if you can't breathe well, and you can't go out, because it takes breath to go out, and you can't do things. You become increasingly socially isolated and, and miserable about that. So making doctors more aware about asking about breathlessness and trying to optimize the treatments they know would be an immediate clinical thing I'd like to see, and if they can try and use some of the non-pharmacological treatments that we had and we were using in our studies such as information packs and so on that we gave patients, I'd be happy for that. As far as the next research priority goes, um, well, I don't think I'd like to be limited <laughs> to one, but I hope that there'll be other people working in it. The first thing I would say is that I think the nature of research needs to be more multidisciplinary, so involving people from palliative medicine, respiratory medicine, also imaging folk who can image brains and so on, so they tell us a bit more about the mechanisms of breathlessness. But I'd also like us to start testing other treatments. We've got very few drugs that we can use in refractory breathlessness. We did a Cochrane review um, before that showed that actually benzodiazepines that are widely used don't have a good evidence base. There is quite a good evidence base in very advanced disease for low-dose morphine, um, but quite a lot of people don't want to use that earlier on. So testing other drugs that might have benefit, and I have a a few frontliners in that, in proper trials I think would be really valuable. Because what we have in front of us, if you look at pain now, you have a huge assortment of different medications you can test, you can use to help manage very advanced pain. You have very few uh, medications that are in your uh, kit to be able to manage severe and refractory breathlessness. And and the last area of research is I think the the role of the muscles are very important in breathing. The leg, I think that breathing is not only about the lungs. It's also about how the legs function and how your muscles function, because if you think if you're trying to do things, how strong your muscles are really matters. It's also about how your brain works and how you think about them. So integrating what's going on with the muscles with what's going on with the brain in researching breathlessness, I think, would be a a kind of fundamental step in how we think about this.
0: And on that point, I think we'll leave it there. Irene Higginson, many thanks for speaking with the Lancet Respiratory Medicine podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed for your interest in the field.